Well, good morning. Thanks for being here, 11 o'clock service. Uh, those of you who are new because of David Laughlin, just thank you for being here. I was just in the kids' area there having a blast. You know, he does such a great job at doing these illusions that point to Christ, and he walks through with them and just kind of explains the gospel message. And so it's just really well done. And so if you're here because of that, I just want to say thanks for being here because we're in our second week of this series called The Week That Changed Everything. And the reason that we're calling it that is because in our Bibles, uh, there's four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that talk about the life of Jesus. And so much, disproportionately, amount is dedicated to the final seven days of his life. So obviously God wants us to learn and to receive and be challenged, you know, by some things. And, and uh, I also got a chance this last year to go to Israel. So we're trying to give you a, even a, a deeper or a, just a different perspective that may open up this story that may be familiar to you, but hopefully it kind of creates a new perspective like it did for me. For example, last week uh, was called the Triumphal Entry or Palm Sunday. And we walked away kind of being challenged by this question. Are we following who Jesus is? or the Jesus we want him to be. In other words, we want Jesus to be a warrior. We want Jesus to be more political. We want him to be more, you fill in the blank. And, and some of those may be true, but we gotta get to know who Jesus really is because the crowds thought he was one thing and they were kind of disappointed that he wasn't what they wanted him to be versus trying to get to know who he really is. So today though, I wanna start with this before I explain kind of what's behind me. Uh, have you ever felt unseen or insignificant? Or I should probably say when. You know, whether you were a kid or whether you were a teenager, whether you were older, maybe it was a new work environment. You walk in and you just kind of don't fit in. Uh, uh, maybe it was a new neighborhood. Uh, uh, maybe it was just an experience that you went on that you're like, yeah, I just kind of feel like a number. Maybe it's just even coming to church, to be honest. You're like, yeah, I just kind of feel like I don't fit in. Like I'm just kind of one in the crowd. Or maybe the opposite, you've tried really hard most of your life because you experienced that once, that you're like, I'm never gonna allow that to happen. So you do whatever you can to be more proactive or engaging. And as a desire to succeed, you wanna make sure that you're not feeling uh, unseen or insignificant. But to back up, let me define this. In our culture, to be significant means to be sufficiently great or important. To be worthy of attention. <laughs> that one fits pretty well. Uh, noteworthy. Now, we have a tendency to do this when we walk into newer environments. Whether we do it on occasion or we do it regularly, there's a sizing up kind of thing that happens in our mind. And the way that usually happens is you have a tendency or there might be a, a possibility, especially when you're not feeling comfortable, to walk in and measure people up. Like, you know, hey, I am better than these people or these people are equal to me or these people are less than me. Well, less than what? However you define whatever is significant. See, whatever is important or significant to you, you'd be like, you know what? I'm significant compared to those others in the room. And, and as pastors, uh, we can get caught up in the same thing as well. Uh, I'm embarrassed uh, to admit that in my younger years as a pastor, I would go to pastor's conferences. And as you go to pastor's conferences, <clears throat> excuse me, I couldn't help but compare. And so I found I met other pastors and I was like, in my mind or heart, I'd be like, well, compared to that pastor, uh, they seem to be a lot more spiritual than me. Or that pastor speaks better. Or that pastor is more popular. Now, I never ran into one that was better looking, just so you know. I just <laughs> want to throw that out there, you know, that was there. Or the biggest one, you know, that pastor oversees a bigger church, right? Yeah, it's kind of gross, but hopefully I've kind of grown in that, in, into what really significance is. But you have that tendency to create this comparison. And I know I'm not alone. 
You've done it as well. Social media has really heightened this. Uh, let me talk to you moms. Ever on social media, you know, uh, look at some other mom and just kind of compare yourself and be like, wow, that mom seems to have not just one, but two full-time jobs. One, they're a CEO. They seem to have six perfect kids, a perfect metabolism. Uh, they seem to have a perfect husband, unlimited resources for vacations or experiences. And you're like, man, I just don't measure up. You see, comparison is the killer to feeling significant. Comparison is the killer to feeling significant. And, and you know this is true when it comes to experiences or things that have happened that is really significant in your life. Maybe it was a, an accomplishment. Like, for example, you're like, you know what? Um, I've trained so many years and I climbed Mount Rainier. And you're like, wow, that's so significant. Except you happen to be a room and the very next comment from the person next to you is like, that's great. I did Everest last week. And you're like, oh, you don't feel as significant anymore. Why? Because you immediately compared with someone else instead of just allowing the significance of what actually has taken place. Now, and don't think for a second that we don't do this in Christian circles. Do you know what we call it in Christianity? Top that testimony. That's what we call it in Christianity. Happens all the time. And people do it subtly, but it'll be something like this. People are telling a testimony, by the way, is like, this is who I was before Christ, and this is how Christ saved me, and this is who I am now. And, and so somebody starts out and says, wow, man, you know, I was really far from God. You know, I was involved in things like drugs and some other things as a kid, and I accepted Christ. And everybody's like, oh, that's just an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. Immediately, somebody else says, well, you know, that's great, but I was hooked on drugs, and I accepted Jesus Christ, and he set me free. Everybody's like, wow, well, that's, that's great. Somebody else says, well, I was hooked on drugs, and I sold drugs, and I was homeless and Jesus found me. And it was like, whoa, that's amazing. And then you always got that next person that says, well, guess what? I was a drug dealer. I helped other people become homeless and Jesus found me. And that's absolutely amazing. And then there's always that last person who stands up and says, well, I'm Pablo Escobar, you know, and I found Jesus. And you're like, oh. And so that first person's like, oh, I have such a weak testimony. You know why? Because we have to top that testimony. And there are people who don't have these grandiose testimonies and they think, well, maybe God's not working as much in my life because compared to other people, my story doesn't measure up. We have this in areas of our life of whatever you think is significant, we find that. Now, there's nothing wrong with competition, but competition and comparison are two different things. There's also nothing wrong with wanting to live or have a life that makes a difference, that matters, or even that is seen. But how we go about that is the key in the motivation and what we do is important. Because here's the truth. God's view of significance is so much different than the average view that we have or even the world says is significant. And so today and next week, we're gonna look at this scene you know, right here that we're calling the Last Supper or the Upper Room. Now I told you in all four of our New Testament gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk about the life of Jesus. Now, what can be confusing at times is even though each author has a perspective, we don't often know the chronological order of what happens when comparing different books. And when you're able to see the order, it opens up to the story to an entirely different level. Let me show you what this looks like. I found this graph this week, so you can kind of see on the screen. On the upper left, I know it can be like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of information. Just follow me. Look at the upper left where it says the event. 
Okay, then it says Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and 1 Corinthians. So then, as we're going to talk about this week and next week, you can see under event, it says Passover prepared, Jesus sits with his disciples, Jesus' desire to eat with the Passover. But here's the cool part, is if you put it all in chronological order, you can see which verses from which book, based on the timeline in which Jesus did this, actually comes into play. And it's so significant. I get kind of giddy being able to share this with you because I learned a lot of this stuff this last year when I went to Israel and had a master teacher walk through with me some of these things that I'm about to share with you now. And so with that in mind, let's look at the very top under Luke. In Luke chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 7. It says, Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Okay, so in the nation of Israel, they were enslaved by Egypt for 400 years. Then God brought his deliverer named Moses to come and let his people be freed under the reign and rule of Pharaoh. Pharaoh said no, so God decides to send 10 plagues. These plagues correspond with different gods in Egypt, thus showing that he is the one and only true God. Well, the last plague was actually the death of the firstborn. And in order for the Israelites to not lose the death of a firstborn child or a firstborn in the family, they would have to find an unspotted lamb, they would have to kill the lamb, and they would have to take the blood and put it over the doorposts. I know that sounds, for some of you not, you know, don't have this background, like, that's kind of gross. You need to understand, there had to be a punishment that was rightly going to be paid, and what that lamb did was offer themselves, you know, to be able to sacrifice themselves so that when the angel of death came, the angel passed over. Remember last week we talked about Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the lamb being Jesus is so significant because what rightly deserves our punishment, Jesus takes it on himself. And so they celebrate as a nation that when the angel of death came, they pass over. So this called the Passover lamb or the Passover feast. That's what Jesus is walking into on this specific day. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go, And prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. You can go to Jerusalem today, and you can see where this location approximately, or at least what it would look like even back in Jesus' day. So they would go up these flight of stairs, always on the outside, and you would go into this place. That's why they call it the upper room, because it's above the lower part of the household. As you walk in, here's also a good picture of what Jesus' location with his disciples would have looked like. Now, here's one of the questions. Why isn't Jesus more specific? You know, why does he go through all this choose your own adventure kind of stuff? Hey, follow this guy. And when he does this, then you're supposed to do that. And you know, kind of stuff like Jesus, why can't you be a little clear? The reason is, is because Jesus knows that Judas and the religious leaders are trying to find him away from the crowds in order to take him away, have him tried and eventually have him killed. So as he tells his disciples, he doesn't want Judas as the betrayer to know ahead of time where they're going to meet. So he tells them this in such a mysterious way because Jesus needs these few hours with his followers. 
This conversation he's going to have in the upper room is critical before he actually goes to what's called the Garden of Gethsemane to then be turned over you know, by, the, by, by, by uh, Judas as well as the religious leaders. Then it says this, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Some of your versions say reclined, and that's probably the best translation. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins, for I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. They have no idea what he's talking about there, which we'll talk about in a little bit more of this next week. So he sits down with his disciples to eat this Passover meal. Now, there is a famous painting that has been done to commemorate this event. And it's by a guy by the name of Da Vinci. And so he did this incredible work. I mean, the detail and the pictures and the things that are on there. And yet it's incredibly wrong. There is probably not one thing in this picture that is actually accurate to what Jesus had. Now, somebody asked me in the previous service, like, Dan, should I take it down? I'm like, no, just know it's wrong. You'll be fine. You know, it's, it's okay. You know, so, uh, so we have this idea. So what, what is it actually supposed to look like? This is actually what it looks like. This is called a triclinium meal. And you can look this up online. You know, it's very easy to find. Triclinium meal. And what they would do is they would make it into a horseshoe shape for a couple purposes. One is if there was any entertainment, it'd be easy to be able to do. But more importantly, if someone was going to serve, they'd be able to come in and very easily serve the meal that's taken place. Now, these, there, there was always uh, uh, this high. A lot of times you think the tables are going to be high. No, it was very, very low to the ground, only a few inches off the ground, which is why reclining at the table would have been more accurate. All of which traditionally, whether you were left-handed or right-handed, you would lean on your left side because your left hand was the dirty hand. And you can ask somebody else later why everybody's left hand was dirty back then when they didn't have toilet paper. I'll let you figure it out yourself. Okay, so everybody's leaning on their left side. They would eat with their right hand. Notice that there's no utensils. So what they would do is they would grab bread and then they would begin to grab the dishes. Think like hummus as a base or something like that. And then they would grab the meat, dipping into bowls that would have been right in front of them. And then would begin to eat on a regular basis. The second thing you need to know about a triclinium meal is if it's an important meal, think uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, If you have a traditional Thanksgiving, there's a sign seating, right? You know, grandpa sits in the same spot every week and it doesn't matter if you're 35, you're still at the kid's table. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So in a triclinium meal, there's always a sign seating. So you have the, the four that I wanna point out to you today is you have the host. The host would always be in the second seat of the triclinium meal. Next to the host, you'd have the guest of honor, you know, to be to their left and to their right, it would always be a very, very close friend. Now, and as you look around this table, you would always find that if there wasn't a servant that was available, this seat would become the servant's seat, okay? It would become the servant's seat. So here's what we know about this meal according to God's word. Jesus is in the host seat. He's not in the guest of honor seat. He's in the host. He's put together this meal. He's told them what's going on. He's in the host seat. Here's what we also know. To his right is John, Now, how do we know that John, you know, is in that seat? Well, in John chapter 13, verse 21 to 25, it says this. Now, Jesus was deeply troubled, and this is in chronological order. Jesus was deeply troubled and exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering who could he mean? 
The disciple that Jesus loved, which again, the author is John, so he talks about himself. Awkward, I know. Uh, was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Okay, we know he's either in the guest of honor seat or he's to his right. He's sitting next to Jesus. So I'm gonna tell you, he's sitting to his right. He's not the guest of honor, which we'll get to in just a second. Simon Peter motioned to him and asked, who's he talking about? So here's what we know. Simon Peter is not in the guest of honor seat. He has to motion. So he's not sitting close. He has to get John's attention. So he's sitting somewhere over here to say, hey, John, who's he talking about? So the disciple leaned over, and you can even see in other versions, rested his head onto his breast because he's leaning on his left. He leans back over onto Jesus, and he says, Lord, who is it? So, so far, we know that Jesus is in the host seat. We know that John is in the right, you know, in, in, on his right hand, you know, that he's there. And so where could Peter be? Peter is in the servant seat. And we'll talk about why in just a second. Peter is in the servant seat and it's going to make so much sense in just a second. So as you look through this and we're like, okay, if Peter's in the servant seat, Jesus is in the host seat, John is in the right hand, you know, seat, who in the world is in the guest of honor? Judas. I want you to sit and process that. I'm going to explain how we know that in just a second. But Judas is in the guest of honor seat. Now, the reason I want you to let that sink in is for just a second. The next thing that we know chronologically, and this is going to blow some of your minds, chronologically is Luke 22 verse 24 is the next thing that happens after they are seated. And it says this, then they began to argue amongst themselves about who would be the greatest among them. <laughs> Why do you think they might be arguing about who the greatest is amongst them? They've already had conversations wanting to sit on Jesus' right and left in a different conversation. And I wonder, this is Dan supposing, I wonder who might have started this. Probably Peter, right? Wait a minute, why does John get to sit there and there? And so there's this uprising that begins to take place and they're arguing before the Passover meal about who is gonna be the greatest. Have you ever done that? I've done it with brothers of, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. Now we don't do that as, outspoken today. We're a lot more passive aggressive, you know, than that. But we do like to talk about other people and other things. Like, for example, one of the conversations today that people are having is now, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? You know, is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? So how many guys would say LeBron James? There it is. We have a sinner amongst us people. We will pray for Daniel and everything that he stands for. Uh, and how many of you guys think Michael Jordan? Okay, all right. I knew this was a smart crowd. But it is interesting that with every generation, they always try to make a case, you know, for who the greatest is. I love the disciples because they're arguing like brothers as if they'd been around each other for the last three years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which they have. Do you think they cared a little bit about significance? What are they arguing about? Who the greatest is? How are they arguing? They are comparing themselves to one another to try to prove the point about who the greatest may be. So what does Jesus do in the order of which takes place? He is seated here. The meal is supposed to begin. They're arguing about who the greatest is. And chronologically, we read this. In John 13, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. 
So he gets up from the table. He takes off his robe, his outer robe. Remember last week he said everybody had two articles of clothing back then. He takes off his outer robe. He wraps a towel around his waist. He pours water into a basin. And then he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with that towel that he had around him. Now, you need to understand, in that culture, it was very common when you walked into a house that your feet would be washed. In the same way in some of your houses, if it's a dirty you know, day or something like that, you have brand new carpet, you say, will you please take off your shoes before you come in? Very similarly, they would do this on a regular basis. And here's what you need to know. The lowest of the servants, if you had them, would be the ones to wash people's feet upon entering. So here they are arguing about the greatest And based on their positions, because there's no servant, who's responsible for washing the disciples' feet? Peter. And he has not done it at all. He's arguing along with the others about who's the greatest. Jesus gets up from the table and he makes his way over and he makes his way over. We see this to Peter. Now notice Peter's reaction, which explains so much about why Peter goes over the top in a reaction. Could it be that he was possibly a little bit embarrassed about being called out? And so he says, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. Peter says, no, you will never wash my feet. Jesus, this is so below you. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. See, Jesus is trying to help him understand a spiritual significance. And Peter keeps thinking this is a physical experience. It's just like when Jesus had his conversation with this guy named Nicodemus at night. And he says, hey, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, okay, how do I crawl back into my mother's womb? That's weird. And Jesus is like, I'm talking about spiritual things here. And you're making it physical. Peter is keeping it physical. So he says, okay, if this is what it means, Simon Peter exclaims, then wash my hands, my head as well. Give me a bath, Lord. That's what I'm looking for. Not just my feet, but Jesus replied, a person who's not bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you can imagine, and he's almost posturing. And for all of you, my disciples, you are clean. But, he says, but not all of you. Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and he sat down and then he said these phrase, this, this phrase. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. He goes, you call me teacher and Lord for that is what I am. Since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you example to follow. Do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, slaves, are not greater than their masters, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you if you do them. In light of this conversation, Luke says the same thing, but I love how he says it in light of the argument of who's, who's the greatest. Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and the great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important? 
The one who sits at the table, the one who serves. And he knows what their answer is. The one who sits at the table, of course, that's what he's saying. You're going to say, but not here. For I among you am as one who serves. I'm showing you something different. See, in the week that changed everything, Jesus is redefining significance and success. Servanthood is the cornerstone of significance in God's kingdom. It's the cornerstone. And our issue is we fall over and over, mine as well, into the temptation to avoid servanthood. And for me and for you, it's pride. It's pride. We think we are above whatever it may be, or we've misprioritized. And it's not just Peter, right? It's Judas as well. Uh, In Matthew chapter 26, notice the words here. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn. Imagine this. Am I the one, Lord? 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 And then Jesus, and he replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. How do we know that Jesus is in the seat of honor? One who has eaten from this bowl will betray me. He's right there next, and we know it's not John. And so Judas looks at him and and says, Rabbi, am I the one? Do you notice the difference? All the rest ask, Lord, am I the one? Judas says, Rabbi. The reason I mention that is there's a lot of people in this world, and maybe this is you as well. You have no problem with Jesus. You've heard that he's a great teacher. He's, he's done good things you know, in this world. Your problem is usually with the church or with other Christians, and in many cases, you're not wrong. And, and this is where Judas is at. He's like, Jesus, you're a good rabbi. You're a good teacher. But the rest of the disciples say, no, 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 Jesus, you're Lord, which means I'm surrendering my will and my purpose to your plan. Judas was disappointed with Jesus. As we talked about last week, he didn't fulfill what he thought that the Messiah was supposed to do. And so now he was taking his pride and his life into his own hands to do what he thought actually was best. But here's the big question. Why would Judas be put at the guest of honor? Of all the disciples, why would Jesus put Judas at the guest of honor? The Bible tells us that Jesus loved his disciples to the end, to the very end. Jesus is like, I know what you're about to do and I still love you. I'm gonna give you every reason not to do it. I'm gonna show you to the end. And what a reminder for the rest of the disciples when they're gonna go through being mocked, being made fun of, persecuted, abandoned, ridiculed, that they can remember how do we treat people who are going to betray us? How do we treat people who don't like us? How do we treat people who mischaracterize us? Maybe we should treat them in the way that Jesus treated Judas and love people to the end. Back, Back to our table. This wasn't an accident. You see, in the eyes of God, he placed Peter unknowingly was seated in the greatest seat of honor according to the eyes and the will of God. The one he built his church upon, the one he was trying to teach, this is what it means. Peter was a great servant. Peter was a great follower. And Jesus was still trying to teach Peter, look, I've actually placed you. You think based on comparison that this is the seat of honor, but Peter, you're actually in the seat of honor in my kingdom. If you would just embrace what that looks like. 
You see, the greatest people in the kingdom of God, or let me be even more specific, the greatest people in our church, it's not me. There are so many of you and others who serve and who continue to serve in the name of Jesus out of your love for people who will never be recognized, but God sees and he knows. This day would change everything for what followers of Jesus would be known for. For in the same upper room, Jesus would say in John chapter 13, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. That ain't new. Just as I have loved you. You have another, a different picture now of what that looks like. That's how you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It's to pick up the towel and to begin to wash proverbial people's feet in the name of Jesus. So as we close, you have an opportunity to surrender or to serve Jesus by serving other people in the name of Jesus. I got a lot of work to do when it comes to this truth of what it means to follow him. And maybe you came in here today thinking, well, I just came because somebody invited me to, to this David Laughlin thing and my kids found me, you know, now I'm in here now. We don't think it's an accident. We want to invite you with the possibility that maybe God brought you in here not just to learn a little bit more about Jesus, but maybe, just maybe, to surrender your life to Jesus. We want to give you that opportunity. Or for those of you who have given your life to Jesus, what a reminder that I know it's been for me, that I hope it's going to become for you, that this is what it means to follow Jesus, to actually live the way of a servant. How do we do that with family members that drive us up a wall? How do we do that, you know, when it comes to those at work who make it all about them and they always throw you under the bus. How do we do that, you know, in a world that always paints Christianity as some extremist, hateful, you know, uh, thing that's thrown in the media on a regular basis? How do we do that with people of a different race, economic class, or political thought or opinion? We serve and we continue to love, not based on whether they deserve it or not. Judas didn't deserve it, but based on who Jesus is, and what he's done for us. That becomes the motivation. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today. And again, an opportunity to look at your word, maybe with some new or fresh eyes. Pray you would just lead and guide us as, as we just want to follow you. And I know that there are some people that are making decisions even now in this room to choose to surrender their lives to you. And if that's you, I pray that you pray this prayer. Jesus, I surrender my life to you. Teach me what it means to be a follower of you through your word, through the lives of other believers. God, for the rest of us in this room, I pray that your spirit would just awaken us to what serving looks like, to what significance looks like, so that we can stand tall and proud because of who we are in you. We love you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.